As a reminder, this podcast is made by cardiology fellows to enhance the education experience in the CVICU. The content is not verified by hosts or speakers. The content provided by this podcast is not intended as medical advice. All opinions represented are our own and do not represent the opinions of our employer. Welcome to CVICU On The Go, an educational podcast focused on key topics relevant to the management of CVICU patients. Today's topic is acute coronary syndrome, and we're excited to have Dr. McPherson as our expert discussant. Dr. McPherson is not only the Internal Medicine Residency Program Director, but also an excellent cardiologist. Dr. McPherson, thanks for being here today. Happy to be here, Katie. Thanks. All right, let's get started with our case. Miss W is a 69-year-old woman with history of ischemic stroke three years ago, type 2 diabetes on insulin, hypertension, sleep apnea, psoriatic arthritis, and hypothyroidism. She's presenting to the emergency department with chest pain. Her chest pain started one week ago. It initially occurred for 20 to 30 minutes daily, usually after activity like grocery shopping or gardening, and it was relieved with rest. She described the pain as a deep squeezing pain, and on the day prior to presentation, the pain actually occurred at rest while she was sitting in her recliner watching TV. It lasted the entire day and was five out of 10 in intensity. She decided to seek care in RED, and she's never had pain like this prior to a week ago. Dr. McPherson, how would you approach this patient? Well, her history is very concerning for an acute coronary syndrome. First of all, she's a 69-year-old woman with multiple risk factors, including insulin-dependent diabetes and cerebrovascular disease. Uh, She presents with a one-week history of what sounds like classic exertional angina that then transitioned to pain at rest, which is very concerning for an unstable plaque uh, and clinical uh, crescendo angina. Okay, so when we talked to her a little more, we learned about her home meds. She's taking Plavix because of her stroke, amlodipine, Lasix, insulin, Losartan, and Synthroid. She has a surgical history of carpal tunnel release, tonsillectomy, and a trigger finger release. She's never been a smoker. She does not drink alcohol or use illicit drugs. She has a maternal grandmother with diabetes, father with a stroke and hyperlipidemia, brother with hypertension, and her mother had some sort of arrhythmia, but she's not sure what. At this point, Dr. McPherson, what else do you want to know? At this point, I think we've gotten all of the pertinent elements from the history, and I would focus on what her vital signs are, what her uh, targeted cardiovascular exam is. I'd want to know what her EKG looks like, and also if we can get a point-of-care troponin test. Okay. On vitals, she's afebrile. Her temperature is 97.7. Her pulse is 86. Blood pressure is 136 over 72. She has a respiratory rate of 12. She's saturating 100% on room air. Her BMI is 30. She's awake and alert in no acute distress. She has normal work of breathing on room air. She has symmetric chest excursion and lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally. She has no wheezes or rawls. On cardiovascular exams, she has a normal rate, a regular rhythm, a normal S1 and S2, no murmurs, no extra heart sounds. We estimated her JVP to be six to seven centimeters. She has two plus radial pulses, two plus femoral pulses without bruise, 
two plus DP pulses, and no carotid bruise. The remainder of her exam was relatively unremarkable. We did get an EKG that revealed submillimeter ST depression and T wave inversion across the precordial lead, and her point of care troponin was initially 0.44. For completion's sake, we got a CBC, which was within normal limits, and a BMP, which was also within normal limits, with a creatinine of 1. All her LFTs were in normal limits and her BNP was 118, which is the first value in our system. So at this point, we have a woman presenting with chest pain. She has a positive troponin and EKG with submillimeter ST depression. Now what would you do, Dr. McPherson? Yeah, so her uh, physical exam is fairly typical in that it's unrevealing. Uh, many times that people present with acute coronary syndrome, even high-risk ACS will have a normal or unrevealing uh, physical exam. Her only real abnormality is a slightly elevated JVP. Um, more concerning is that she has ECG changes that are concerning for ischemia with ST depression and T wave inversions. And in addition to that, her troponin is elevated. So the presentation is consistent with a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. Okay. So we have an acute coronary syndrome. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach when thinking about these patients which of these patients should go emergently to cath, and when is it acceptable to delay cath? Good question. So it's really important when initially evaluating these patients in the emergency department to risk stratify them, and that can be done through a few validated tools such as the Timmy risk score or the GRACE ACS score. Um, however, you can take a more simplified approach in that if somebody has high-risk features, uh, any high-risk features, the recommendation would be to proceed with an invasive approach with coronary angiography. Uh, and these high-risk features would be history of uh, prior coronary disease with revascularization, uh, known left ventricular dysfunction, uh, acute heart failure, abnormal troponin, significant uh, ischemic ECG changes are the most important ones. And she has multiple findings that put her in the high-risk category. Okay, so while in the emergency department, Ms. W's chest pain actually recurred, and she received aspirin, multiple doses of morphine, and sublingual nitroglycerin with ongoing chest pain. So the decision was made to pursue an emergent left heart cath. Her left heart cath revealed an LV EDP of 16 millimeters of mercury, no aortic stenosis. Coronary angiography showed a left main with just mild disease. She had a 95% proximal LAD stenosis and a 90% distal LAD stenosis. Her left circumflex had a 50% mid-vessel stenosis and her RCA had a 30% mid-vessel stenosis. In this situation, Dr. McPherson, how would you treat her? So with her ongoing ischemic symptoms and her high-risk findings and an angiogram showing critical disease in a proximal LED, I would proceed with PCI and stenting if the anatomy was suitable for that technically. Okay. And do you see any contraindications to reperfusion therapy for her? Not at this time, no. Okay. So she did receive a 2.5 by 15 millimeter Resolute Onyx drug eluting stent to the proximal LED and a 2.25 by 26 millimeter Resolute Onyx drug eluting stent to the distal LED. 
one thing I found interesting about this case was that she actually had already come in on Plavix and had been relatively adherent to that as far as we could tell. So can you talk to us a little bit about the timing of dual antiplatelet therapy and anticoagulation in a STEMI versus an NSTEMI? And then if you could tell us about how we decide what antiplatelet therapy we're going to use. Katie, that's a great question. So for somebody presenting like this with a ACS non-ST elevation uh, MI, you have multiple choices. Now she came in on clopidogrel already. When somebody, even when they're adherent to 75 milligrams of clopidogrel daily, you cannot assume that they have therapeutic uh, platelet inhibition. And so our practice is to rebolus them with an antiplatelet, whether it's clopidogrel or one of the other P2Y12 antagonists. In this case, I would go ahead and give her an additional 600 milligrams of clopidogrel on the cath lab table, in addition to starting a systemic anticoagulant. And she was reloaded with antiplatelet drugs in the cath lab, and she actually fortunately did very well. However, in some of our patients who are coming into the CVICU after acute coronary syndrome, they are more hemodynamically unstable. And in those patients, we like to consider mechanical support. So could you tell us about who you would consider for mechanical support before leaving the cath lab in one of these situations? Yeah, another great question. Patients who are presenting with either impending cardiogenic shock or in cardiogenic shock in the cath lab would be people that I would consider for mechanical circulatory support, uh, potentially with the Impella device or less likely balloon pump, as balloon pumps have not been shown in general to be of benefit in patients that present with cardiogenic shock in the setting of ACS. And once we get her back to the unit, what post-ACS or post-intervention complications should we be looking for, and what is the general timeline for these? The first set of complications that we should be aware of when somebody comes back in the first hours to day after intervention are bleeding or vascular complications. And so looking for uh, evidence of internal bleeding, occult bleeding, uh, particularly if the access site was in the groin and not in the radial uh, artery would be one. Looking at distal pulses is another one. Um, looking for evidence of cholesterol embolization, which is fortunately rare but can be lethal and devastating when it happens. Those are the initial complications that we look for. When somebody has a transmural infarction, then it's important to always be aware of mechanical complications that can occur due to myocardial necrosis that's transmural. And that can be acute mitral regurgitation from papillary muscle rupture, uh, acute ventricular septal defect, or potentially free wall rupture presenting with PEA. Okay. Fortunately, Ms. W did fine. Her post-MI course was uncomplicated. Her troponin peaked at 27, and she was transferred to the floor the next day. For her post-MI care, we often have lots of check boxes that we like to go through, but I wanted to talk about a few of those. In somebody who's had an MI, when is the best time to get an echo? So an echo should be done prior to discharge. If, if you have an acute concern, either uh, impending shock or new valvular dysfunction or mechanical complication, then certainly get it at that point. But otherwise, that can wait until 
potentially the day after revascularization or even the day after that. Um, what we tell people is if they have left ventricular dysfunction, that could potentially be due to permanent injury or it could be due to stunning or hibernation and a repeat echo should be done in four to six weeks after discharge. Okay, thank you. So we did get an echo on her three days after her MI. She had mild LV systolic dysfunction with a distal anterior septal and anterior apical hypokinesis. Her LVEF was 40 to 50 percent. She had a normal RV size and systolic function, mild MR, trace TR, and an RVSP of 28 millimeters of mercury. If she had had an EF of less than 30 percent, would this change how you managed her? It would certainly make me think about being as aggressive as possible with beta blockade and ACE inhibitors at discharge and careful follow-up with plans for titrating up those medications to reduce the risk of arrhythmia and also reduce the risk of adverse remodeling. And what about if instead of presenting with chest pain, she had presented with a ventricular arrhythmia? Would this change how you manage that patient? Not necessarily. If the ventricular arrhythmia was triggered by acute ischemia and you've taken care and eliminated the source of that ischemia, then I would not be concerned about a re recurrent arrhythmia. So she did well and continued to improve in the hospital, and now we're getting ready to discharge her home. Can you talk to us about the important medicines we should discharge her with? In cardiology, we always talk about the big five after ACS, which are two antiplatelet agents, typically aspirin, plus one of the P2Y12 inhibitors, either clopidogrel, prazogrel, or ticagrelor, uh, a beta blocker, uh, an ACE inhibitor, or an ARB, and a statin, a high-intensity statin. And how long would you consider continuing her dual antiplatelet therapy for? That's a good question. So our default is 12 months. If somebody has an acute coronary syndrome uh, and no other issues, we say a minimum of 12 months. If somebody has um, a significant risk of bleeding or if they have a need for a, an operation that would be better off of uh, antiplatelet therapy, then sometimes we will shorten that. And conversely, if somebody has a low bleeding risk and a high risk of recurrent MI, a lot of times we will continue dual antiplatelet therapy beyond 12 months, but the default is 12 months. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the antiplatelet medications. When you're considering starting someone on a second antiplatelet agent after aspirin, how do you choose the second antiplatelet agent? It comes down to a lot of factors. It comes down to risk of bleeding in the individual patient. It comes down to their adherence to medications and any challenges to that, and it also comes down to cost. If none of those are an issue, I would potentially prefer ticagrelor. Uh, the downside to ticagrelor is that it's a BID medication, that it can sometimes have unusual side effects like a sensation of shortness of breath, um, but the upside is that in a head-to-head -head comparison with clopidogrel after ACS, there, were, there was a reduction in adverse cardiovascular events at one year, and that was the, in the PLATO trial. So that would be my top choice. Prazogrel has also been shown to be beneficial in lowering cardiovascular events compared to clopidogrel in a head-to-head -head trial. But 
at the cost of excess bleeding events. And so in, with Prazagrel, if somebody has certain conditions that put them at higher risk for bleeding, Prazagrel is actually contraindicated. And that would be age greater than 75, weight less than 60 kilos, or history of prior TIA or stroke. So in this particular patient who had a history of a prior stroke, I would certainly not give her Prazagrel. And for this patient who came in on Plavix, if you decided that you wanted to change to Ticagrelor, how would we do that? If you had an interest in changing this patient from Clopidogrel to Ticagrelor after their load, it's fairly straightforward. You would just, the morning that they were due for their next Clopidogrel dose, you would start them on Ticagrelor and you would give them a loading dose of ticagrelor followed by the standard therapy. So Ms. W was discharged on dual antiplatelet therapy, rosuvastatin, metoprolol, losartan, and Lasix. As she's walking out the door, she asks, hey doc, don't you think I should go to cardiac rehab? Dr. McPherson, can you talk to us a little bit about cardiac rehab and its importance in post-ACS care? Yeah, Katie, I'm so glad you brought that up because cardiac rehab is actually one of the most important things that we can do for patients post-ACS. Multiple studies have shown that enrollment in cardiac rehab and participation reduces mortality. So it is vitally important for many reasons that we uh, enroll our patients in cardiac rehabilitation whenever at all possible. So Ms. W was discharged home, did participate in a cardiac rehab, and on her follow-up appointment was doing well. I think this is a great case that illustrated some important points about acute coronary syndrome. Thanks, Dr. McPherson, for walking us through that. If there were three takeaways that you would want residents to understand from this case, what would they be? So number one, initial risk stratification is key, and it is not complicated. It has to do with their symptoms, the ECG, the troponin, and validated uh, risk calculators like GRACE or TIMI. So that's number one. Number two, giving careful attention to dual antiplatelet therapy and getting that going as soon as possible, rebolusing people if they come in already on an antiplatelet agent. And then number three, careful attention to post-ACS care. Uh, cardiac rehab I'm going to put up there. We always talk about it last, but we probably ought to be talking about it first. Okay, thank you all for listening, and we look forward to our next episode. Thanks, Katie. Thank you.